All right. Uh, today's uh, message is an interesting one. Um, not that there's boring ones, but this is just going to be interesting. Um, did everybody get one of these handouts on the way in? It's called Proverbs 31, a tool for blessing and affirming wives. First Samuel is where we've been camping out lately. We took a little break for, uh, for our Easter series and last week for our, our Words from the Fathers. And Dennis talked last week about commitment, particularly as it pertains to marriage. And um, I followed that up with, with some, some further words about commitment. And uh, now today we find ourselves in 1 Samuel 25. 1 Samuel 25 is sort of an interesting story. Um, it's one of those stories where it was clearly included for a reason because it easily could have been overlooked in the long run. Um, 1 Samuel 25 is the story of, of, of David and Nabal and Abigail, right? And um, what we're going to talk about today is, is redemptive femininity um, and redemptive masculinity. And we're going to talk about this from sort of a, uh, a paradigm standpoint. In other words, from a structural standpoint. From, from the way that God has made us and how we are to engage um, one another. And, and hopefully we're going to, in the midst of this, not just redeem femininity and masculinity, but hopefully redeem Proverbs 31 along the way. Um, it's a big task for us, since there's a lot in that. So let's, uh, let's pray and ask God to uh, enlighten our minds. God, we, um, we come before you and recognize that you have words of life. Um, that you alone have the words of life. And, and we, we, we confess Peter's confession again. Where else would we go, God? You alone have the words of life. And so we, um, we stand in that place and we want your words. We, we seek your revelation. We seek your heart. Um, grant them to us, Father, by your grace and, and by your love. Root each one of us firmly in our sonship in you. We bless you and uh, we worship you in Jesus' name. Amen. Let me start off with an assumption um, that, that may or may not be true. All right? um, today's sermon uh, may or may not be one that you enjoy um, uh, because it, it very well could offend you. A lot of people at Cornerstone tell me that they most enjoy my sermons when I'm most offensive. So I've just taken this to heart and um, you know, decided I'm just going to pull all the stops. I'm just joking. I'm not, I'm not going to try and be like that. I am going to say, though, this. If today's concepts about redemptive femininity and redemptive masculinity and the engagement between men and women and husbands and wives, like if that gets to you on really personal levels, let me just challenge you right away that your problem isn't with the text and your problem isn't with me. Your problem is with your sonship. Right? Your, your problem is, is, with, is with a rooted identity in Christ that allows for you to be spoken to really poignantly and distinctly, succinctly by the Holy Spirit and by his word. What disables us from being able to receive those words that oftentimes do hit us so close to where we live and that become really offensive to us and our spirits and minds and hearts is that we're not foundationally rooted in our, in our sonship. And so what's being come against is our, is our, is our attempts to try and um, convince God why he should love us. And, and so when we get into those spots and when that crutch gets taken away, it drops us. And when, when we fall, we generally fall pretty hard. And, um, and, and the word hurts us. And uh, I, I'm not going to try and be, and be har- harsh at all today. I am going to try and, and speak truth. And uh, I am going to try and help us all see together what it means to live together as men and women in the design and the ways that, that God designed us to. And, and uh, David and Nabal and Abigail give us some really... Um, uh, interesting pictures about what that looks like. So I'm going to read the text, and I'm going to sort of talk slash teach our way through the text. And, um, 
And then we're going to make some application at the end. Verse 1. Now Samuel died. Now this might be like, uh, like a, 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 basic, a, a basic statement. You know? And you read this from time to time. Like Moses died. Aaron died. You know, these sorts of things. Now Samuel died. Let me ask you, why is the writer of 1 Samuel, why is this a much more interesting statement? Now Samuel died. Because in four chapters, Samuel comes back. Samuel's the only person that Scripture tells us died three times. Like, like, like the writer of Samuel is being sure to make sure we, we realize just how crazy it is when Saul goes to the witch at Endor and summons Samuel back from the grave. Three times before that, we're told Samuel died. Um, just, yeah, I think it's interesting. Now Samuel died, period. Well, what a way to start a, start a portion, you know? Now Samuel died. And all Israel assembled and mourned for him, and they buried him at his house at Ramah. Then David rose and went down to the wilderness of Paran. And there was a man in Maon whose business was in Carmel. The man was very rich. He had 3,000 sheep and 1,000 goats. He was shearing his sheep in Carmel. Another interesting point of note, if you want to do a really interesting word study or, or concept study in Scripture, look for the instances in the Old Testament where it talks about shearing sheep. There's four of them, and they're all related to judgment on some level and in some way, and harsh judgment. Wild. All right. Not only that, but shearing in the Old Testament, like they didn't, like iron and like, like shears, like that, they was, you know how they sheared sheep? They pulled it out. You know, just ripping, ripping it out of the sheep. Anybody here ever sheared sheep? I've sheared sheep, strangely enough. Yeah, like it, 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 it's a brutal process with shears. But holding these animals down, just ripping their, ripping their hair out. That's, it's a rough life being a sheep, as we can all attest to as being part of the church. All right. He was shearing his sheep in Carmel. Now the name of the man was Nabal, and the name of his wife was Abigail. The woman was discerning and beautiful, but the man was harsh and badly behaved. He was a Calebite. All right, the woman was discerning and beautiful. The man was harsh and badly behaved. So the writer Samuel, he uses a literary contrast here. Right? He gives her two good qualities, and then he gives him two poor qualities. And, and the poor qualities, like uh, for, for, for Nabal, uh, he was harsh and, and badly behaved. Like that's, how, that's how you talk about a kid. You know, like kid, kids are badly behaved. Rarely do I say, you know, Sherry's like, well, how was your meeting? Wow, that guy was really badly behaved. Uh, um, this doesn't happen too much, you know. So, so, so Naples, he's badly behaved. Uh, and, and as you'll see, it's a pretty fair description. Um, Nabal was badly behaved, and he was very harsh, right? Very harsh. Harsh is beyond mean. Mean is generally reactive. Like somebody is mean when they react. Harsh is an active meanness. Um, the woman was discerning and beautiful. In, in Hebrew, both of these words work together um, to describe the nature of God in, in several uh, interesting spots. Um, discerning here mean, means intelligent. It means she's smart. It means that, that she's able to, not, not just to have knowledge, but she knows how to use that knowledge in a, in a way to help the situation. And she's beautiful. The word beauty is used 36 times in the Old Testament, and this particular one is in regard to like, like feminine beauty. Eve beauty uh, would, would be the way to think of it. Um, beauty is a pretty twisted concept, in, in, in our cultural land, landscape today. And um, uh, what we're going to see in Abigail is a true release of beauty. 
right? a, a true release of beauty. Like I say, it, it's pretty twisted where, where we're at. Um, you can buy books about how to be beautiful. Which I just think this is hilarious. The Beautiful People's Beauty Book by Princess Luciana Pignatelli, which is really interesting. You can take online courses to learn how to be beautiful. New Authentic Beauty online courses. Um, you can register for it. And, 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 and by the way, it's not just February 2010. They're doing one in 2013 as well. Uh, beauty is one of those really, really twisted, twisted concepts in, in our world. It's important for everybody to understand right up front a few things about beauty. Number one, beauty is to be desired. Number two, God is the definition and root of all beauty. All beauty stems from his beauty. Right? All beauty stems from God's beauty. So when Abigail is listed, when she is described as discerning and beautiful, she is already, just even if you know just a few psalms that they would have sung at this point in time, she, she's already been put on, this woman is a godly woman. This woman is like God in her, in her actions. This man is harsh and badly behaved. Right? So, good guy, bad guy, or good girl, bad guy, whatever. David was in the wilderness. David heard in the wilderness that Nabal was shearing his sheep. So David sent ten young men, and David said to the young men, Go up to Carmel and go to Nabal and greet him in my name. And thus you shall greet him. Peace be to you, and peace be to your house, and peace be to all that you have. I hear that you have shearers. Now your shepherds have been with us, and we did them no harm, and they missed nothing all the time they were in Carmel. Ask your young men, and they will tell you. Therefore, let my young men find favor in your eyes, for we come on a feast day. Please give whatever you have at your hand to your servants and to your son, David. Now, it's important to remember that David at this point is on the run. David's been appointed by Saul to be a great captain and a commander in his army. But then Saul goes nuts on several occasions. God actually sends an evil spirit upon him that makes him turn against David. And David ends up having to run from his life. He has to leave his best friend. He has to leave his great occupation. He has to leave all of his success behind. And David goes tearing off through the wilderness running away from running away from Saul. David has the opportunity to kill Saul at one point. He's hiding out in a cave and, and Saul comes and he's able to he, he's right there. You can kill Saul. He chooses not to. But he, he he says, I can't touch Saul. God has put Saul into power. It's not my right to, to to lay a hand on him. And so David stays on the run and David is still on the run. David is now at this point assembling, though, uh, a small fighting force with him. This is known, these are known as David's mighty men. Right? And David's mighty men, they end up being about 600 strong in the long run. And they stay with David and they follow David. One of the ways that mercenaries would earn a living is by protecting merchants' uh, flocks. You know, you're out uh, for, for a merchant that has a lot. I mean, 3,000 sheep is a lot. That's a lot of animals. You know, three, a thousand goats, that's a lot of animals. Uh, just a few shepherds can't protect that, so they would oftentimes hire mercenaries to do so. Mercenaries would sometimes swindle merchants by not asking for if they wanted protection. They would just show up with their guys, surround the sheep, and then demand tribute. So it's hard to say what exactly is going on here in David's mind. Right? Uh, oftentimes David is sort of seen righteously in this passage. I'm going to picture David as, as unrighteous in this passage. I think David is as manipulative and badly behaved as Nabal is in, in, in this situation. All right, let's keep going. When David's young men came, they said all this to Nabal in the name of David. And, when, and then they waited. Nabal answered David's servants, Who is David? Who is the son of Jesse? There are many servants these days who are breaking away from their masters. Now that's just straight up mean right there. Like that's, 
That's a hit below the belt. Nabal comes out swinging, and he comes out swinging illegally. Right? David's not leaving his master. David had two spears thrown at him by his master and has to run for his life. So to picture this guy as being some weakling who's on the run trying to start some military coup against Saul, right? Nabal is clearly very badly behaved. Shall I take my bread and my water and my meat that I have killed for my shearers and give it to the men who come from I do not know where? Count the number of first-person pronouns in verse 11. I'll count it for you. There's 10. This dude is, is harsh and badly behaved. So David's young men turned away and came back and told him all this. And David said to his men, Every man strap on his sword. And every man of them strapped on his sword. David also strapped on his sword. And about 400 men went up after David, while 200 remained with the baggage. To strap on your sword is different than strapping on your sword. Right? A warrior that's not going to battle carries a sword with them all the time. But you just sort of, you just put it around your belt. Oftentimes they'd sling it around their shoulder and it would hang loosely off their, off their side. But when you're going to battle, then you strap on your sword. Which means you like wrap it around your waist three times. You tie this thing on good and tight because if you lose your sword, you're in trouble. So David basically says... You know, boys, you know, mount up. It's time to go to biz, take care of some business. Well, we're going to go show Nabal who's the boss. Every man strapped on his sword, and they strapped on their sword. And about 400 men went up after David, while 200 remained with the baggage. But one of the young men, all right, now this is the young man being a servant of, of, of Nabal, right? One of the young men told Abigail, who all we know about her thus far is that she's beautiful and discerning. Right? She's, she's godly. Behold, David sent messengers out of the wilderness to greet our master, and he railed at them. Yet the men were very good to us, and we suffered no harm. We did not miss anything when we were in the fields as long as we went with him. They were a wall to us both night and by day. All the while we were with them keeping the sheep. Now therefore know this and consider what you should do. For harm is determined against our master and against all his house. And he is such a worthless man that one cannot speak to him. So... Uh, David may or may not have been asked to provide protection for the flocks. Regardless, Nabal tramps on every basic principle of hospitality and and of generosity uh, to not even want to give bread and water when it comes to to David's men for doing something nice for him and for his flocks. The young man who listens to, to Nabal doesn't know that David has ordered war to come against the house of Nabal. All the young man knows is that unjust injustice is taking place. And so he goes to, of all people, Abigail, the wife. Now, maybe you've heard certain things about women and men in the Old Testament and about how women are basically property and they have to be you know, really careful about how they speak to their husbands and really careful in their dealings and whatnot. I think a lot of that is, is Christian late 20th century chauvinism being projected onto the pages of Scripture. I think that we can see women approaching their husband in Scripture very respectfully, very honorably, and being really used by God to do good things in their lives. This, this, this isn't about trying to find chauvinism in the pages of Scripture here. This is about seeing how men and women work together. And so this servant feels comfortable enough to approach Abigail. He feels comfortable enough with her to be able also to speak truthfully. I mean, he calls a woman's husband a worthless man who won't listen. Abigail made haste. 
and took 200 loaves and two skins of wine and five sheep already prepared and five seas of parched grain and 100 clusters of raisins and 200 cakes of figs and laid them on donkeys. And she said to her young men, Go on before me. Behold, I shall come after you. But she did not tell her husband Nabal. And she rode on the donkey and came down under the cover of the mountain. Behold, David and his men came down toward her, and she met them. And David, now David had said, Surely in vain have I guarded all that this fellow has in, in the wilderness, so that nothing was missed of all that belonged to him. And he has returned me evil for good. God do so to the enemies of David, and more also, if by morning I leave so much as one male of all who belong to him. If you were to translate this text from, from Hebrew, it's one of the more vulgar Hebrew um, uh, portions uh, of the Old Testament. Like there, there are some very, very strong words that if they were to be uh, transliterated properly into our language, would be considered swear words. When, when he's talking about the, the men of Nabal here, like he, he is calling them very, very, very derogatory things. Um, he, he, is, he is very, very angry, and he is reacting just like that, based on a slight that was made against him. Right? Nabal, in his mind, is harsh and, and, and badly behaved. Furthermore, because Nabal is harsh and badly behaved, he needs to be punished. Furthermore, I need to be the one that punishes him. So let's go get him. And off they ride. In the meantime, Abigail is aware of the exact same things. Do you notice this? She does not argue with the servant or chastise the servant. Right? He's a worthless man who won't listen to anyone. She also doesn't say anything other than to take action. Abigail is a woman who really understands what's happening in the situation. In the long run, both of these men are out of line. This is very fallen masculinity. This is two male egos that have chosen to duke it out. Now, Nabal's stupider than David. There's no doubt about that because David has an army of 600 people, you know, and Nabal has flocks. So, you know, like, what are you going to do? Um, but, but again, he's very badly behaved, and badly behaved people tend to lose their minds now and again. But the, both of these men are out of line. This is very fallen masculinity that's found each other. This is two male egos that have crashed into one another. But the savior in the situation is Abigail, because Abigail knows three key things. Number one, she knows who she is. She knows who she is. She understands that she is the wife of a crooked man. She's also the wife of a crooked man who is very wealthy and who has a lot of stuff, including her inheritance, and including the lives of servants and people who would go to battle against David should they be attacked, just out of pure necessity. So Abigail understands who she is. She knows that she is the one person in this situation with A, the good sense, and B, the ability to do something about what is going on. Abigail very easily could have packed a donkey and put some water and bread and some of this stuff on it that she was going to give to David on it and take her handmaidens, she has five of them, and ride out of the village the other direction. Because what we find out is her husband throws a party that night and he gets drunk. So she easily could have just left, knowing what was going to happen to this. But, but, but she doesn't. She understands who she is. She understands that she's the one that can provide the discernment 
and, and um, the reconciliation that's needed. She also understands what is happening. Like she, she, she reads the situation and she knows what's going on. She knows that her husband is a worthless guy. She knows that he won't listen. She knows that this servant is correct. And she knows how to respond. She knows how David has been slighted. She knows how he's been offended. She knows what it is that she needs to bring so as to protect herself and her people, regardless of the worthless man who won't listen to anyone. Lastly, she knows how to respond. She knows what to do. Verse 29. I'm sorry, verse 23. When Abigail saw David, she hurried and got down from the donkey and fell before David on her face and bowed to the ground. She fell at his feet and said, On me alone, my Lord, be my guilt. Be the guilt. Please let your servant speak in your ears and hear the words of your servant. Let not my Lord regard this worthless fellow Nabal, for as his name is, so is he. Oh, I forgot to tell you that. Nabal is his name and folly is with him. Nabal's name means fool. Uh, chances are that Nabal's parents didn't name him that. Um, chances are he earned that name for himself somewhere, somewhere along in life. But, but Nabal means fool, means folly. Nabal is his name and folly is with him. But I, your servant, did not see the young men of my Lord whom you sent. Now then, my Lord, as the Lord lives and as your soul lives, because the Lord has restrained you from blood guilt and from saving, your own, saving with your own hand, now then let your enemies and those who seek to do evil to my Lord be as Nabal. And now let this present that your servant has brought to my Lord be given to the young men who followed my Lord. Because please forgive the trespass of your servant. For the Lord will certainly make my Lord a sure house because my Lord is fighting the battles of the Lord. And, surely, and evil shall not be found in you so long as you live. Notice what she is doing with David. She is diverting and retracing his mind back to his actual purpose. Back to his actual design. David is angry beyond sense. He's offended at the injustice being leveled at him and his men. Abigail doesn't come in and try and schmooze him. These gifts are not in appeasement of anger to try and divert things. And to call. She, she diverts him back to who he is in God. You're going to be the future king. What does she say? What battles should he fight? He should fight the battles of the Lord. The Lord, in verse 28, will certainly make my Lord a sure house. Because my Lord is fighting the battles of the Lord. And evil should not be found in you so long as you live. You can, you can just watch it in David's whole life, in his whole time as king. When he asks God if he should go to battle, he wins. When he doesn't ask God if he should go to battle, he, he, he either loses or he wins. And there's horrible consequences as a result of it. He didn't ask. All he did was react. All he did was get mad and go. And Abigail diverts him back to who he is in Christ. If men rise up to pursue you and seek your life, the life of my Lord shall be bound in the bundle of the living in the care of the Lord your God. And the lives of your enemies, listen to this phrase, the lives of your enemies he shall sling out as from the hollow of a sling. I mean, this lady's smart. I mean, why does that phrase ring in David's ears? You know what I mean? It's his favorite weapon. The lives of your enemies he shall sling out as the hollow of a sling. And when the Lord has done to my Lord, according to all the good he has spoken concerning you, and has appointed you prince over Israel, 
My Lord shall have no cause of grief or pangs of conscience for having shed blood without cause, or for my Lord taking vengeance himself. When the Lord has dealt well with my Lord, then remember your servant. And so she understands how to respond. She gets him back in line with who he is in God. She doesn't try and smooth him. She doesn't flirt with him. She doesn't offer him inappropriate relationship. She simply goes to him, and she tells him the truth. She tells him the truth. It's one of the key aspects of who Abigail is. Abigail speaks the truth. I mean, before David, she calls her husband a worthless man. She's not dishonoring Nabal here. He was a worthless man. The scriptures say it. Harsh and badly behaved. This is reality. This is the situation. This was not an act of dishonor. I really want to make an application here, but I'm going to hold myself off. Verse 32. David said to Abigail, Blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, who sent you this day to meet me. Blessed be your discretion, and blessed be you, who have kept me this day from blood guilt and from avenging myself with my own hand. Why is that so important? Because who does vengeance belong to? It belongs to the Lord. Who writes that in several psalms? David. Who wants vengeance more than anything right now? Not against Nabal. Who does David want vengeance against? Saul. Is he getting vengeance? No. So David is is not just angry, but he's hurt. He's disappointed. He's asking God for vengeance against his enemies. God's not supplying it, at least not yet. And now here comes a place to have a, a bit of a temper reaction and to go against what he knows is absolutely true. And the grace of God comes to him to this woman of this worthless man. For as surely as the Lord, the God of Israel, lives, who has restrained me from hurting you, unless you had hurried and come to meet me, truly by morning there had not been left to Nabal so much as one male. There's, there's more, more curse words in there. Then David received from her hand what she had brought him, and he said to her, Go up in, t- in peace to your house. See, I have obeyed your voice, and I have granted your petition. What an interesting choice of words. David doesn't say, I, I, I listened. David doesn't say, uh, I'm going to make a new decision. David says, I have obeyed your voice. The warlord, talking to the woman, says, I submit myself to what it is that you say. Again, I'm I'm not sure we understand the whole male-female thing the way we're meant to. Abigail came to Nabal, and behold, he was holding a feast in his house, like the feast of a king. Nabal's heart was merry within him, for he was very drunk. So she told him nothing at all until the morning light. That, I think this just, again, like, you know, badly behaved. I, who gets drunk the night that you turn away David's men? I mean, by the, this time, it had to get back to him that, like, David was really angry and was coming with an army and whatnot. I mean, this guy, he, he throws a party, like, for that of a king, and gets completely trashed. So she told him nothing at all till the morning light. In the morning, when the wine had gone out of Nabal, his wife told him these things, and his heart died within him, and he became as a stone. In other words, he had a stroke. And ten days later, the Lord struck Nabal, and he died. When David heard that Nabal was dead, He said, 
Blessed be the Lord who has avenged the insult I received at the hand of Nabal and has kept back his servant from wrongdoing. The Lord has returned the evil of Nabal on his own head. Then David sent and spoke to Abigail to take her as his wife. When the servants of David came to Abigail at Carmel, they said, David has sent us with you to, be, to take you to him as his wife. And she rose and bowed her face to the ground and said, Behold, your handmaid is a servant to wash the feet of the servants of my Lord. And Abigail hurried and rose and mounted a donkey, and her five young women attended her. She followed the messengers of David and became his wife. David also took Ahinoam of Jezreel, and both of them became his wives. Saul had given Michael, his daughter, David's wife, to Palti, the son of Laish, who was of Gollum. And uh, in so doing, David uh, takes upon himself polygamy, and uh, stores himself up for himself almost no trouble. We see almost no trouble from David for his polygamy, for his multiple wives, but we see his son Solomon destroyed by it. And that should tell us something about idols. That just because we don't wreak the havoc in our lives that idols should bring doesn't mean that our kids won't. The whole wife thing uh, is really interesting. You know, when Abigail says at the end of her speech to David, on that day, remember your servant. Sort of interesting. I think that Abigail is exceedingly confident, exceedingly strong, discerning, beautiful. These These are good descriptions for her. If there was... Any woman, I think, in the pages of the Old Testament that we would look at and say, what does the Proverbs 31 woman look like? I think we would look at Abigail. So that's, that's the story. That, that's the interesting, very, very interesting story. I like to take the rest of the time that we're together um, in, the, in this space of teaching and, 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 and talk about this concept of redemptive femininity that Abigail lives so clearly and, and that, um, that, that, she, uh, um, that she walks in in such a great way. I also want to talk um, as men about what it means to live with redemptive femininity. And, and uh, I think Proverbs 31 is going to help us with that. Now, when I said Proverbs 31, everybody in this room that's ever heard anything about the Bible got some kind of picture in their head, Right? So it's important for us to rethink, reimagine, and reclaim Proverbs 31.11. It's important for us to rethink, reimagine, and reclaim it because there's stuff like this all over the place. This is the Proverbs 31 woman. Right? So is this. This is all from a Google search, Proverbs 31 woman. Right? So is this. There's t-shirts that you can buy declaring your desire to be a Proverbs 31 woman. Uh, there's desktop backgrounds that young men can put on their uh, computers and, and can meditate on the scripture of the Proverbs 31 woman and know, know what to seek and, and how to seek it, which is this, sort of what we're taught as, as young boys a lot of times, um, is that Proverbs 31 is, is, a, is like, it's a list. You know, it's, it's, it's a list of what you look for in a, in a wife. And, and you're taught to, you know, seek these things out and that this is, this is the kind of woman that you want to marry, that you want to be with. Um, and in the midst of all of these things, um, there's, there's no Proverbs 32 man. You know what I mean? Um, like, where, how did this happen? Like, where did this come from? Hello, um, 
why is there a list 21 verses long of, of female qualifications to be a good wife? Um, and, and what about if you're not a wife? Um, what if you certainly can't attain to these things in Proverbs 31? I mean, most of our homes lack spinning wheels. Um, it's hard to find merchants who bring their ships from afar these days. Um, <laughs> And it's really not that big a deal to leave a lamp on all night. <laughs> what do you do if you're a single mom? You know what I mean? Like, what do you do if God's given you a call as a woman to be a transformational leader in, in, in the marketplace, in the business world? Like, what do you, what do, you do if God's given you significant uh, craft and, and desire and creativity in your life? Like, how, how do you live that and still be uh, subservient, good, and kind and make sure everybody's clothes are mended on time? Um, you know what I mean? Like, it, this, this Proverbs 31 thing has gotten a bit out of hand, in my opinion. Um, and it's time to reclaim it and to take it back for what it's really meant to be. My most enjoyable moment of researching the Proverbs 31 woman on Google was there's only one, one celebrity's face who came up. And uh, apparently, Angela Lansbury is the uh, Proverbs 31 woman. Who would have thunk it? Who would have thunk it? Unbelievable. So, uh... Yeah, rethinking, reimagining, and, and reclaiming Proverbs 31. If, if you have that handout that I gave out, pull, pull that thing out. Let's read this first page together. Proverbs 31, 10 to 31, is a widely misunderstood and misapplied passage of Scripture. Therein is a traditionally understood perfect woman, the consummate homemaker perfectly caring for her children's holistic well-being and her husband's every happiness. Often, this ending passage of the book of Proverbs is, is employed with a shame-based perspective toward Christian women, a type of scenario that verbally or non-verbally says, if you were a woman of God, you would look more like this. Proverbs 31 is often wrongly used most hurtfully toward single women, especially as they overhear single men instructed to use this scripture as a list of qualifications to look for in a good wife, as though any human has the right to examine any other human and start checking things off a proverbial list. In my opinion, the biggest problem in this situation is that Proverbs 31 has become codified and unhelpfully adopted into our Christian subculture. Proverbs 31 has become a moniker, a brand even, for a certain understanding of some concept of religious femininity. Because it's become so branded and cheap, and we don't actually know what the text even says, let alone how to understand and use this text. Proverbs 31 is not a prescription, it is a description. Furthermore, it is not a description of a woman. It is a description of pieces and concepts of redeemed femininity. Also, Proverbs 31, like all of Scripture, draws on the full story of Scripture that has gone before it. Every descriptive characteristic mentioned is found in women of the Old Testament who have gone before the writer of this portion of Proverbs. Eve, Sarah, Rachel, Miriam, Ruth, Deborah, Naomi, Hannah, Rahab, Abigail, Bathsheba, and scores of other unnamed women share in living these pieces and ways of redemptive femininity. Lastly, and most importantly, Proverbs 31 is not written to women. It is written to men. And it is not meant to stoke our egos as ones worthy of examining the lives of women and encouraging them in their walk to become more like the Proverbs 31 woman, who again, does not exist. Rather, it is to widen the naturally myopic viewpoint of men to the fullness, mystery, and beauty of femininity as it is lived in redemptive ways, ways that mirror the heart and design of the Father. 
So the following is a thematic exposition for husbands to use in affirming, loving, and mining their wives. I'll get back to that. It is meant to take time, thought, and consideration on his part and to be verbally shared with her in a space of quiet and reflection. This tool follows the text of Proverbs 31, 10 to 31, thinking deeply about each word and phrase and directs the husband in considering, seeing, and naming his wife. I'll give come more about that. This is an excellent study, discipline, and application for fostering truer levels of oneness in the marriage covenant. Regularly employing this tool in the rhythm of a marriage will encourage and release deeper and wider dimensions of intimacy and one fleshness in the marital relationship. And that's the end of that portion there. Proverbs 31 is not the perfect woman. Proverbs 31 is a conceptual idea. It is written to a boy to receive from his father and or mother and or simple wisdom literature at all because the book of Proverbs contains words from a father, words from a mother, and words from actually pagan wisdom literature of the time in chapters 21 and again in 31. Proverbs also, Proverbs are Proverbs. They are not promises. You already said, Proverbs are Proverbs, not promises. Train up a child in the way he should go and when he is old he won't depart from it. That's a proverb. That's a rule of thumb. That's a, that's a wise piece of counsel. But there's people who are trained well in the ways of the Lord and walk away from God. The proverbs are pro- proverbs, not promises. They are meant to piece together conceptual concepts, not direct applications. The great thing about the book of Proverbs is that I, really th- I think it's the only book in the Bible that's helped if you systematize it. I think all the rest of the Bible is actually hurt if you systematize it. To systematize means to pick out themes here and there and to form a holistic thought around them. Systematic theology means that start, a systematic theology of Jesus means starting in Genesis all the way to Revelation. You look for all the pieces where Jesus is mentioned and you bring them all together in this big picture and then it tells you who Jesus is. Right? And that's, that, that's a type of theology, but it's not, it's not the type of theology uh, or the only type of theology. There's other ways of thinking about it, but this isn't a theo- theological discourse. Proverbs, though, is helpful if you systematize it. If you go through it and you pull out all the pieces of wisdom and counsel about finances, you'll actually find contrasting thoughts. You'll find, you'll find him saying, don't lend money, and then when somebody asks you for, to lend them money, be generous. In the same book. You know what I mean? And these are not contradictory things. These are proverbs. These are individual, singular pieces of wisdom that stand out there and that when you think about them holistically and all together, it brings together a picture of something. It brings together a concept, an idea, a way of thinking. And Proverbs 31 here is a pre-systematized look at redemptive femininity, written to a boy from his mother, father, and or other sources in his culture about what redemptive femininity looks like. It is not a prescription of what things should look like. None of us on any level, for any reason, has the right to take a woman and to to think about her from a list perspective. Like, oh, she's got this, and she's got this, you could do better with this, but this, you know, you could work on, and so on and so forth. Not because she's a woman, but because you don't do that to anybody. That's just wrong. People are are to be valued for the depths of, of who they are in their identity, 
not because they meet a certain list of criteria. And so what we have pictured here in Proverbs 31 is wisdom for men to consider in considering women. Hear what I said. What we have here is a picture of redeemed femininity for men to consider. Not to apply to. We need to rescue Proverbs 31 from the onslaught that it has received. For example, one of the Proverbs say that he who finds a wife finds a good thing. Right? And we pray this at weddings and whatnot. And he who finds a wife finds a good thing. In other words, I was, I was walking along and, well, I found her. You know? I found a, I found a, I found a penny today. I found a wife today. You know, I found it. That's, that's not what it means. Right? To find means to mine. It means to discover. It means to dig into the heart and mind of your wife in order to unearth and release more of who she is in Christ. That's what it means to find your wife. And if you find your wife, you will only find, guess what? Good, good things. This is an excellent study. This is the second to the last sentence. I'm sorry, third to the last sentence. Think deeply about each word and phrase. Direct the husband in considering, seeing, and naming his wife. These are three actions that we as men tend to be very dense at. Right? We, t- we tend to just be straight up numbskulled when it comes to considering our wives. What does it mean for you and I, as men, to not consider ourselves and rather to fully 100% consider her. One of the biggest issues that, that we run into in, in marital counseling situations or in, in marital strife situations when it comes to trying to apply some of these things to, to, to marriages is that men always say, well, who's going to consider me? Who's going to consider me? If I'm 100% considering her, who's going to consider me? Men, look at me. You don't need to be considered. Christ has fully considered you. Christ has 100% considered you. His full attention has been given to you. And you have the ability to carry the weight that God puts on you. It's who you are. You have broad enough shoulders to carry all of the world's loss of considerations of you and all of your calling and all of the emotional weight of your family and all of the financial stress that you feel and all of the stress that's happened because of hurts and and, and arguments and things and all of the arguments that you've had about sex and in-laws and everything else. Your shoulders are broad enough to carry those things and to hold those things without saying, who's going to help me? Because the answer is, is Christ will help you. Christ will help you. That doesn't mean you're alone. It does mean that when Ephesians 5 says to love your wife like Christ loved the church, how did Christ love the church? He 100% considered her. He was all in. And that was it. God will consider you. 
And that is enough. As you 100% consider your wife, you will find weight release from you like you didn't know. As you focus there, it's, what, it's who you're meant to be. It's what you're meant to do. Is to fully consider and think about her and how she feels and how these situations affect her and what is going on in her heart and mind. And what she does absolutely naturally, without even knowing she does it, is brings it back around to you. And you're together in your oneness, coming together. Considering. Seeing. Seeing. We tend to see things less the more that we're around them. You hear what I said? We tend to see things less the more that we're around them. That's why our wives can be extremely beautiful to us. But we see a beautiful woman walking down the street, and bam, the eyes go right there, right? Because we're used to seeing this, but this we're not used to seeing. But it actually goes, I think, a little bit deeper than that as well, in that it's not that we get used to seeing things, it's that we cease to be captivated by things. Because other things are captivating our hearts. When we use Proverbs 31 as a tool to truly see our wives and to consider who she is, what that does is it cultivates the soil in our hearts for, for uh, fuller depths and expressions of love and oneness toward one another. It opens us to the beauty of our wives the reason why a lot of our marriages get stale is because no work is ever done to keep things growing fresh. And it gets stale, and it gets old, and before you know it, we're not seeing anything at home. In fact, our eyes actually turn, up, turn off as soon as we pull back up into the driveway. The reason why a lot of us are so stoked by our careers isn't necessarily because we enjoy accomplishing tasks and goals. It's because it's at, it's at that spot that what we do is actually seen. And we feel like what we do at home isn't seen. What we do at home isn't seen because our eyes are shut off. So we couldn't see ourselves being seen even if we were being seen. Thirdly, naming. Naming your wife. Gentlemen, your wife needs to be named. Who named Adam? God named Adam. Who named Eve? Adam named Eve. Adam named Eve. A woman is designed to need to be named. A lot of women live their lives in, 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 in vacuous emptiness a lot of times because they don't know who they are or what they're meant to do, who they're meant to be. And so they either do one of two things. They find an identity that they lock onto, that they just pursue with everything that they have, or they end up trying to be everything to everyone all the time. And so it's like it's the super mom curse or the super wife curse right? or it's the, the, uh, the get stuff done, career-oriented curse. Or there's a third place, which is just completely checking out, which oftentimes leads into depression and emotional anxiety and a lot of, a lot of heartache and heart. Heartache and heart. Heartache and hurt. Um, when what, our, when, when what our wives need from us is to be named. But in order to, to name, you have to see, you have to consider. And so for me to see Sherry and to look into the depths of her and to say and to s discover, to mine her and to say, 
Oh, this is, this is who you are. This is who God has designed you to be. You need to pursue these paths. You need to pursue this line of thinking. Let's go here together more, right? Eve was named Eve because Adam looked at her and he saw, Eve, you're going to be mother of all that's living. He looked at her and said, you're the same me, just not me. This is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. We are one. We are together. Proverbs 31 provides for men the ability to look, to consider, to see, and to affirm who our wives are. And so what you have here is five pages of Proverbs 31. But thinking about it, and not just reading it, this isn't trite, this isn't rote, this is, this is deep, this is rich. She does him good, not harm, all the days of her life. How does your wife increase your good? Do you know? Have you told her? What goodness flows to you from God through her? I bet you could think of things right off the top of your head right now about the goodness you receive from your wife. But does she know? Has she been affirmed? Has it been released in her because you've mined it out of her? What about you could be harmed that she covers with her goodness? How does she protect you just because she's good? Abigail has the ability to absolutely stand as who she is in the midst of two men who refuse to be who they are. Right, two men who are both flying off the handle, one of whom is badly behaved, the other one who is deeply hurting and is getting very angry in the situation. Abigail has the ability to right herself and to continue being who she is in the midst of the insanity that she finds herself in when the men are not. Do you hear what I'm saying? Abigail has the ability in the place that men are not being who they are to still contain within herself who she is and to walk in that. The reason why oftentimes women are drawn to the church and men are not is not because church is a feminine act. It's because men are afraid of being found out. On the other hand, the heart of femininity is to be found, is to be discovered, is to be mined. But we as men tend to run from these things. And it's often because our relationship with Christ is not what it should be. There's no other way to say it. We don't man up because we've never believed that God has changed us to carry that. Our sonship is off. And so we run and we find significance in all of these other less lovely places. And we find addictions that we run to. And we find all sorts of escape routes here and there. When God keeps drawing us back, and, and a continual testimony of men who repent, who just simply change their mind and, 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 and return to who Christ would have them to be, a continual testimony is, I'm just so thankful for my wife in that space, like she put up with me. She, she was able to be that. Redemptive femininity stands in, in shiningly beautiful ways 
And we as men can choose to engage it and reveal it more and more and so increase the beauty of our bride and the beauty of Christ's bride. Or we can choose to escape and hide and run to the things that we normally would run to in our fallenness and flesh. It was really interesting this morning. Um, DJ, you can come back up. Um, it was really interesting this morning. Uh, Calvin, Calvin called me at, at 1020. I didn't answer because I was getting ready and I didn't know that he called. Um, but God had given him such a strong picture in his head that he actually drove here from Ephrata. And, um, and he found Dennis. And, and he and Dennis talked for a while and then I, I made my way out after worship and, and talked with him. And um, he, he said that what God laid on his heart was Hebrews 11.8. And uh, Hebrews 11.8 says, says this. By faith Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to a place that he was not to receive as an inheritance. And he went out not knowing where he was going. And Calvin said the picture that he had was of people carrying suitcases. That like it was time for people at Cornerstone to begin to make a move in their spiritual lives. It's, it's time to stop sitting. God has been speaking to us. God has been speaking to you. And it is time to move from where you are to where he is telling you to be. And you've been considering that and thinking about that. If you're looking for what that time is or where that space is, it's, it's now. Right? Hebrews 4 says that the day of God's salvation, that doesn't mean eternal life. But the day of God rescuing you from you is today. It's today. Calvin brought this word for us. Men particularly, and when Calvin brought this, he said, he said does this apply to anything that, that you were thinking about? It's like, yes, it does. I think that it applies to, to, the, to the men in our congregation. It is time to move from where we are to where God is clearly telling us that we need to be. It is time to leave fear it is time to stop being uh, conveniently disconnected from our wives. It is time to stop being comfortable in our homes. But these are things that are below the man of God. God calls you to higher dimensions of warfare for your wife, of spiritually engaging your workplace, of looking at your family and kids together in oneness as opposed to just parenting. But really moving into it, pursuing it, pursuing her, listening. It's time to move. It is time to leave behind the idols, to leave behind the addictions. It's time to move. What is God saying to you? Whatever he is saying, listen and follow. Let's pray. God, give us hearts to listen and follow. Thank you for the example of Abigail in this situation who stands in the midst of fallen masculinity with this beautifully redemptive view of herself and of the situation knowing what to do. God, thank you for our wives. Thank you for the women in our church. Thank you for the girls that are upstairs and in the 
nurseries and toddler rooms. And we bless femininity today, God, believing that you made it. Eve was not an afterthought. Eve was part of the grand design from the beginning. And she was given to Adam in the most beautiful way possible. And so God, stir in the hearts, relationships, minds, and marriages of every person sitting here, God, to draw out our identity more fully in you and to release us as your children the fuller dimensions of who you made us to be as men and women. We hear your words today, God. It is time to move. Give us faith to step. Pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Since therefore it remains for some to enter it, to enter God's rest, and those who formerly received the good news failed to enter it because of their disobedience, again he appoints a certain day, which is today, saying through David so long afterward in the words already quoted, today if you hear his voice, listen closely, today if you hear his voice, do not harden your heart. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your heart. You might not know what to do, but don't get hard. For if Joshua had given them rest, God would not have spoken of another another day later on. So then there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from his works as God did from his. Everybody look at me. Folks, your marriage is not meant to feel like a heavy yoke of work. There is Sabbath rest for you. That's not to say it doesn't take hard work. It is to say it's not heavy work. So do not harden your heart. And God can and will lead you to his rest. His rescue is there. His Sabbath for you and for your oneness, it is open. His invitation stands clear. Just do not harden your heart. And in the place that you don't know what to do, ask. Ask. Particularly, ask her. And if you find yourself bumping into walls that you cannot get around, and an inability to move forward in any way, ask one of us. We are here to come alongside. Ask an elder, ask a pastor, ask a, ask a mature Christian friend. We are not alone. We are part of the body of Christ. So may you, my brothers and sisters here at Cornerstone, may you know the full heart of your God as he reveals it to you. And may your hearts remain soft before him and steadfast in him. And may you know and experience his unfailing love. Amen and amen. Thanks for being here today. Go with God.